a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, the limitations are psychological, they're societal, they are egotistical, and they're not actually physical limitations. Until the laws of physics are holding you back, it's always possible to do what seems impossible. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Bit of a Tangent podcast. I'm Jared, and as always, joining me is the ever-fascinating Jean-Luca. We've got a good one for you today. In fact, since we recorded it, we've discussed it some more, and I think we'll probably need a follow-up. Today, we're discussing learning. Now, listeners of this podcast are probably the types who love learning, and they certainly want to learn better and more efficiently. Well, we get into all of that today, and we talk about how to select, what to learn, and when to learn it. Because there's an ocean of content out there, isn't there, folks? And sometimes it can feel like you just don't know where to start. Well, I hope that after listening to today's episode, you'll have a new perspective on all of this and maybe a bit more. As usual, show notes can be found in the episode description and on our website at podtangent.com. One last thing before we dive in. We've noticed in the last few weeks that we've gained a bunch of new listeners and we're really excited about this. And we want to know who you people are and what you think of the show. Why? Well, if you're here, you're obviously smart and interesting and it's always fantastic to hear from smart, interesting, intelligent people. So we're going to try something new. We've set up a SpeakPipe account. This is a site where listeners can send voice recordings of what you think, or even just tell us about yourself and how you found us. Most of you live in just amazing places that I've never been to, and Jean-Luc hasn't either. And honestly, it would be fascinating to just know more about our listeners. So wherever you're from, whether it's the US and France and the UK, or if it's somewhere completely different, like the Philippines or Taiwan, wherever it is, head over to speakpipe, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com, forward slash pod tangent, P-O-D-T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and tell us about yourself or what you think of the show. And hopefully, if we get enough responses, we'll include some of our favorite ones in a future episode. SpeakPipe works from a mobile browser, that's on your phone, Android or iOS, or from your desktop. Let's see what comes of this. We'd love to hear from you. Also, while I'm talking about new listeners, I just want to mention how much it helps when you, the new listeners, share the show with a friend. At this point, we're still new and small enough that those of you who just discovered us have a disproportionate effect just by rating us on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or especially by sharing the podcast with other interesting people you think might like it. This is just to let you all know how much we appreciate that and how big of a difference it makes. All right, introduction's over. Let's get on with it, folks. Enjoy the episode of Bit of a Tangent. This is the whole beauty of, of podcasting. It's like, a, it's like a window into someone's mind frequently and deeply 
And you get to talk about topics that are weird to bring up in a social setting. Yeah, I think... So actually, I think we could have like a hugely productive conversation on like the two different ways of like, think about how podcasts tap into our natural evolved ability to learn via story and conversation versus books, which very much build up on like logical premises and are much more structured. There's honestly an hour episode in just that distinction. There's so much actually. Right, cool. So do you want to just dive right in? Yeah. So let's jump right in here and... The reason that I think we should talk about this today is because both of us, as I see it, are very interested in learning and have spent at least a decent portion of our lives trying to figure out what it would mean to learn well, right? I think Mm. we're both very interested in disciplines which are traditionally at least quite far apart. And so over the course of a lifetime, being 5% or 10% better at learning really adds up, right? You get this compound effect. Absolutely. So how I think about today's episode is us talking about all the little tricks we've picked up in the last couple of years as to mm. how to learn well, how to speed up learning, and even when to slow down, because I think that's a whole separate category. Yeah. So maybe we should just frame this whole obsession with learning and get you to talk about just why it's so important and why we get so crazy about this kind of thing. Like, what about today's world do we see as justifying an obsession with learning? I don't think you even have to get to today's world to start justifying that obsession. I think, you know, there's the argument from cultural evolution, which we'll probably have a whole episode on at some point. But the idea that the thing that really makes humans great is not our intellect or our ability to walk upright or our ability to you know, our opposable thumbs or, or anything like that. It's our ability to learn across individuals and across generations and you know to sort of paraphrase i believe isaac newton stand on the shoulders of giants and in so doing see further than anyone has seen before and that idea of over time passing on knowledge and passing information from individual to individual and learning from that and then building upon it is i think critical to what has made humans successful in the past and what makes us successful today and what i see will make us most successful in the future I think the further we stray from that, the less likely we are to maintain growth and technological development and prosperity, and the more likely we are to stumble into more tribalistic ways, even in our sort of technocratic societies. And so I think, you know, even before the modern world, learning was everything. Learning was everything when you could fashion a canoe because you had been taught how to by your father or grandfather or someone else in your tribe, and you could then paddle out into the water and catch better fish and you knew how to catch fish because you'd been taught that by someone else and and so on and so on and i think that is crucial and that is only Mm. accelerated as humans have progressed the agricultural revolution the industrial revolution the technological revolution or rather the information revolution these have all accelerated us into the future in a way that learning has only become more important and learning faster has become more critical to success and to innovation and so in the modern world, we, we have this sort of hyper form of this learning being an essential tool whereby in the knowledge economy, which is what almost a majority of people in developed nations at least are involved in, your ability to learn and synthesize and then create and create new things is everything. It's the source of your economic power and the source of your impact on the people around you. It's very hard to do anything of real significance that doesn't involve learning 
knowledge and the dissemination of information. Right. I mean, you're essentially limited to only the things you can do with your muscles <laughs> if if you don't have that ability to learn and to leverage that learning to do new creative and impactful things. Right. So as you seem to say, either learn more or get bigger muscles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just absolutely swole. Just get to the gym every day. Every day. For hours each day. No, actually just once a week for about 20 minutes <laughs> doing everything to failure we as go. we've spoken about in a previous episode there but. we go so i think i come at it from a similar perspective the only thing i'd add to what you've already said is that in many ways some of our older attitudes to learning i think have fallen away right i think in a world where the cost of a lookup right the cost of searching mm. a factual answer has gone yes. to zero right we can go and check what isaac newton's birthday was right now right yeah so we've got this disconnect between the necessity of learning disconnected facts about the world mm. and developing deep useful understanding right and i like to think of this in terms of almost a compound interest kind of thing right in in, in compound interest or in any situation where you get compounding returns it's the last few epochs right the last few time periods that make all of the difference right sure and in the same way with compounding returns to knowledge it's the last bit of deep understanding that gives you all of the ability to create something new and novel right it's sure. that real depth to your knowledge your deep fluency and ability to affect things at like a technical level mm. so given this right and given that there is more now for any person to learn than could be realistically learned in a lifetime. I think it's helpful now to almost delineate between two things, which I know you've mentioned before, which is the difference between learning philosophies and learning techniques, right? Or, or the sort of life hack type things. And I think both are interesting to get into. So before we get into individual techniques, shall we talk about some of the different philosophies we've encountered about learning? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think to sort of highlight a point you've already made a little more and tying in with philosophies here, it's important to understand that this has shifted over time. Yeah. Right? In that tribal hunter-gatherer society, facts were everything. Knowing a fact was the ability to survive. Knowing that a specific plant would heal your wound or that a specific kind of wood would make for the best fire was everything. And nowadays, facts are pretty much dispensable in the sense that we, we can look them up, as you say, at, at any point in time. And so mm. we've had a massive shift in humanity's history in what parts of knowledge or what parts of information are important and valuable to us and therefore it is important to shift how and why and what we learn and and this is this idea of different philosophies and i think one thing that really drives this point home is sort of looking at the scholastic method all right right which is the derivative of the word scholar and this dates back to you know probably ancient greece but i mean you can go back many hundreds of years and this idea of one person standing at the front of the classroom teaching a whole bunch of people talking and these other people are listening and taking notes i mean this has been around for an absurdly long period of time hundreds of years if not thousands right 
Yeah. And when you look at the origins of this, it was almost certainly due to the fact that there was like one copy of some manuscript that contained all the facts. And because there was no printing press, you had to get up there and essentially dictate it. And then there were a whole bunch of people there just copying it down. So yeah. you were just, you're really just transcribing facts so that people could now have more copies of these facts and then take them back somewhere else and, and read these facts out to other people. Mm. Right. And in the modern world, that is absolutely useless and redundant because not only do you not need the physical book in front of you, you can, you can look it up online. You can have the lecture slides in front of you. You can know the content before you've gone to the lecture. But yet we right. still have this template. We still have the, the mechanics that were supporting an older philosophy. Mm. All right. So there, there is very much a link between the sort of mechanics or the techniques and the philosophies in the sense that some techniques benefit some philosophies better than others. And a potential problem that I see is that while our philosophy has needed to change and has sort of changed to some extent, our techniques have remained largely fixed for the majority of people for a very long time. So much so that when someone comes with a new technique or an improved technique that is just, just deviates from the status quo, they can just do things that seem absolutely inhuman and remarkable to the rest of us. Right, the people who can memorize a deck of cards in like 30 seconds right. and, and, and recite it back to you. Right, that seems impossible to most people. But because most people have been educated in this sort of scholastic context, whereas the people that are memorizing a whole deck of cards have totally different techniques that they use and different mechanics that they yeah. use to learn these things. Right, so there is this, this definite relationship between the techniques and this interplay between the techniques and the philosophies. And I think, mm. I think that is, is critical. Uh, that said, philosophies probably come first because you need to know why you're doing something and what you're trying to do before you look at how best to do it. Because if we know what we're trying to do, the how we do it is something that we can test and play with. If we know what our objective is, we know a way of measuring how successful our techniques are. So as you say, the philosophies do come first. Right. So I think what I'm going to do here is I sort of went back and looked for some of the big salient kind of philosophies that I've at least noticed uh, for the last sure. few years. And uh, when I was doing this, I noticed a sort of surprising degree of concordance between them or maybe it's not surprising actually so what i think i'll do here is i'll sort of go through this list and get you to react at the end and sort of add thoughts as you see fit okay great right so one of the first ones that comes to mind is one mentioned by elon musk and indirectly quoted by tim urban in his sort of very wonderful series of blog posts on elon musk's thinking and in it, he describes how Elon Musk, who obviously has a history of, first of all, being very learned in a number of disparate areas, right? I mean, everything from solar power to electric cars to computer programming and PayPal and then rockets, right? And Musk sort of calls it almost the tree of knowledge. So for anything, you have the trunk. And before you can hang very specific niche facts as little leaves upon your tree, you need a solid and well-built sturdy trunk, right? And that trunk is composed of the core knowledge of the discipline. But it's more than that. It's the set of basic disciplines from which you can derive any other idea or discipline. 
So in this case, this is things like maths and physics and biology and the other hard sciences, right? And from there, you learn the most general principles, right? And you build this up so that each little fact you learn at the end can be drawn all the way backwards to its underpinning in a very broad principle of a major discipline, right? So you don't have these disconnected, loose hanging strands of isolated facts that don't have any logical underpinning, right? So this relates quite strongly to the ideas put forth by Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's investing partner, right? Mm. And Poor Charlie's Almanac, he's the author of that book. Right? From yeah. Poor Charlie's Almanac, right. And in it, Munger talks about having a lattice work of mental models, right? He sort of views it as your responsibility if you want to be knowledgeable about the world to do what is essentially the 101, the first year university course in every major discipline, right? So you could think of it as like mathematics, physics, biology, psychology, literature, computer science, all these sort of introductory courses, right, of the biggest disciplines. And by doing so, you catch all of the low-hanging fruit. And from those big principles, you can generally derive higher order, more difficult facts, right, or consequences. Mm. And this relates, I think, to what Musk is saying in that rather than sitting there memorizing these very high-level tertiary disconnected lists of, of facts, you can go back and build these things up from what someone like Richard Feynman would call first principles, right? And so that, I think, brings us quite neatly into the third idea, which is, as Richard Feynman would say, being able to break something down into language that a four-year-old would be able to understand and explain every logical link, right, between your set of axioms, just the most basic building blocks, right? And all of the causal links between them. And at the end of this, have something which is in simple language, without jargon, understandable to someone who is very young or very inexperienced in that field. Now, the reason I think that Feynman was so against jargon is because for many of us, and myself included, jargon becomes a kind of haven for us when we sound like we know what we're talking about, but don't, right? This is something that... I believe it was, I think Shane Parrish writes about this very well. He calls it chauffeur knowledge. And this comes from the anecdote where Max Planck, the famous physicist, was being driven around. He was giving a lecture on one of his uh, sort of breakthrough discoveries in physics. And his chauffeur accompanied him. And eventually, having accompanied him so many times, the chauffeur memorized the lecture. And so he says to Max Planck, uh, how about I do the lecture next time? So he says, okay, great. And so he stands up at the next stop and he gives the lecture. And at the end of the lecture, he's asked a very complicated question, right? And he turns to the person and says, oh, your question is so simple. I'll let my chauffeur handle it. And he points to Max Planck. That's fantastic. <laughs> now, maybe the story is apocryphal, yeah. right? But the idea of chauffeur knowledge is you can memorize the jargon that goes into some discipline, right? You can memorize something like the Schrodinger equation. You can memorize the fact that Light is a duality. It's both a wave and a particle, right? And you can say those things and have no understanding of what they imply and no ability to predict anything about the world because of them. The, the Deepak Chopra phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Quantum babble. Quantum babble. <laughs> so, so Feynman's idea, right, is break things down into 
simple language that anyone can understand, right? And he obviously has the famous Feynman technique, which we might get to when we talk about specific techniques. But just to close the loop here on strategies that I've encountered, or rather philosophies that I've encountered, we get to the ideas of Eliezer Yadkowski, right? So the two that I've noticed in the sequences, right, that is all of Yadkowski's essays, is two general practices, right? One being taboo your words, right? What does that mean? So it relates beautifully to the Feynman example in that what Yadkowski proposes you do is imagine there was a taboo on the very specific jargon that you were meant to use to explain your your thesis or your specific piece of knowledge, right? Mm. Imagine I couldn't use the word Schrodinger equation to describe something fundamental about waves and light. Mm. If I couldn't use that word, can I still describe the phenomenon, right? If I am trying to describe something to you about how the heart works, can I do it without referencing the Frank Starling mechanism, Mm. right? Do I actually know enough about that to be able to explain it without that word? Now, there is another one of Yadkowski's, right? And I think this one brings everything together, which is he asks us to imagine of all the knowledge you have, how much could be deleted? How much of the tertiary consequences could be deleted? And yet you would still be able to rederive them from your underlying knowledge. Here's a good analogy, right? If tomorrow you deleted all of the knowledge in my head, the names of the machine learning functions, right? That I would have memorized, right? If you were writing some code. Do I or do I not know enough that if I wanted to do some machine learning, I could write the code that would do that, right? Or am I relying on the fact that I have a memory of the name of a function that does something and it will perform that? So if I can't re-derive it, in some sense, there's at least some level at which I'm not understanding it. So I think between that set of ideas, there's a lot, but you can see how they're all interrelated and they're all getting at this fundamental distinction between knowing the name of something and knowing how something works. Absolutely. Yeah, knowing the name of something is really just sort of a lookup to find the information later in some in some sense uh at, at the, it's at the very least that it may also be that plus some basic sort of chunk of understanding about the thing such that you can just slot it in to context when talking about higher level issues so we can talk about the idea of entropy without having to explain it from first principles every time because we just have this sort of lookup for entropy and we know we could look that up online or in a book or something to find the the equations and the you know uh, first principle explanations of it but we have a general idea in our head that it's to do with times arrow and things moving from order to to disorder and 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 those kind of general chunks of understanding and uh, chunking is actually one of these sort of techniques with how the brain learns that that are relevant and, and will come up later but yeah absolutely i think i think those ideas are pretty much all encompassing in terms of philosophies and right yeah i think we've got a lot to go on there and and i, I think there's also some things we can challenge on those as well yeah so then let's just like dive straight into some of these quite specific techniques and maybe in doing so we'll be able to comment on challenges or rebuttals to any of the points in there so i mean when i think about learning something effectively right well we know there are really bad ways to do this and the paradox here being that people seem to naturally gravitate towards the bad ways right 
it's generally accepted by most people that sitting and rereading your book from start mm-hmm. to finish multiple times is really inefficient and you generally don't remember what you learn, right? So if you had to do that better, let's talk about what we'd be doing. And specifically, I'm thinking of talking about things like spaced repetition, deliberate practice, interleaving. And, and these are all ways of moving from a passive to an active form of learning, right? A passive form of, of learning course. is essentially when you're just sitting there absorbing some things through osmosis. And humans are actually surprisingly good at that, considering the fact that we're not devoting much real effort to it at all. Like you could just have right. conversation going on in the background. You could just be listening to some audio or, I mean, a great example of this is the way people just seem to pick up song lyrics without actually deliberately sitting down to learn them. I mean, we all have this massive repository of thousands of song lyrics that we can call up almost perfectly at any given time when prompted and cued in the right ways that we've never sat down deliberately to learn. Right. We've just picked it up through osmosis. So there's that, there's that passive learning, but passive learning is a terrible way to cram for your exam. In the sense that it's just very inefficient, right? It's very, it's very inefficient. You would have to spend just an incredible amount of time to be able to ingest information. And and I mean, we see this, I mean, I, I know people like this, right? Who spend an awful amount of time studying for comparatively little return right yeah so yeah let's let's get into some of these more specific techniques on how you can accelerate and uh increase the speed of uptake and understanding in terms of learning well i mean so the first thing to understand is that you want to move from passive to active learning right and what that's really doing is it's just meaning per every minute or second or hour of time that you invest in learning you're gaining more value than you would if you were doing it passively, right? So an active learning process, because to learn is an active thing. Physiologically, your brain is having to create new synapses. It's having to reinforce existing connections between neurons. It's having to do actual physical work when you learn things, right? At, At the very least, you might also need to be like unlearning some things or removing incorrect connections, right? So it's having to undo things as well. So work has to be done physically. So learning takes effort. And when you do active learning, you're just more efficiently getting that work done per unit of time. Yeah. Right? So it is harder. That's why it is difficult. But the idea being you need less time. So this is all based in sort of the the physiology of it. And one sort of key idea that I think underpins a lot of this is something that I was first exposed to through an online course. I forget which platform it's on, one of the the major online learning platforms, uh, and it's called Learning How to Learn. And I think the main sort of course uh, director for it is Barbara Oakley. Uh, A really good course. You can do it pretty quickly. It's got great notes. I think it's one of the most popular courses on whatever platform it's on. It's on Coursera. Coursera, yeah. Uh, Really good course. Uh, But there was sort of one section in particular that looked at sort of the two modes of thinking as well as the concept of chunking. And these two ideas underpin a lot of the techniques that we'll talk about. So it's sort of like things we need to understand before we can talk about what techniques target these best, right? So you've got your two modes of thinking. You've got your focused and your diffuse mode. Your focused mode of thinking is like when you're trying to add two numbers together in your head or when you're, when you're, when you're staring at an equation in front of you, when you're actively thinking A is equal to B, B is equal to C, therefore that's focused mode thinking when you connect A is equal to C. 
Then you got diffuse mode, which is what happens when you're standing in the shower and not thinking about anything in particular. And suddenly you connect some idea that you never thought of before. But that's diffuse mode. It's when your brain is able to span various different connections and connect ideas in concept space, let's say, that weren't uh, connected before. And this is where a lot of our creativity and where bold ideas and where breakthroughs come from. In addition to that, now you've got this idea of chunking. And what that means is... First, we've got to look at the brain and consider it. It's only got a few spaces for information at any given time. For those who are familiar with computer architecture, you could think of like the registers of a CPU, right? So your computer has a lot of like storage space on the hard drive and stuff like that, but it can only actually process a few pieces of information at a time. It's just very quick at turning these over. So it'll load them in, it'll do some operations, and then it will create a result and save it and then do it again and again really, really fast. And so it feels like it's just able to do everything really quickly, but it can only do a few operations at a time, right? And like when you're talking about 32 and 64 bit, and these are like referring some of the time to things like registers. So in the human brain, you've got like say four to eight, depending on the topic and depending on the person, sort of spaces for concepts, for very, very low level concepts that you can keep in your brain at a time. Right? And if you want to illustrate this to yourself, try do like multiplication of two three-digit numbers in your head. And you will either take incredibly long or fail. It's, it's incredibly challenging because you're having to store these sort of temporary values that you calculate along the way and process other values along the way. And you just sort of run out of space. You can't keep track of all these like temporary values in your mind. Right? When, whereas when you do it with a pen and paper, well, you write it down. So you're essentially like saving it and then you load it in again when you need it. So you'll like look at the, the units column and do that. And then you'll look at the tens column and, and, and then you're writing it down to sort of save it outside of your brain. And then you load it back in when you need it again. So it, it's almost exactly like mm. a caching system in, in computing or like different tiers of memory. And so this idea of your brain only has a few spaces, a few registers that are available to you at any time. So you can't take some concept like entropy or the Schrodinger equation or something high level and understand it in one go. There's too many parts there. There's too many things to keep track of and to understand and to understand the relationships between. So what you do is you start lower. You start with, okay, when you're little, you learn one plus one is two. So now you're holding the idea of one and the idea of another one and the idea of a plus and the idea of being equal to in your mind. And then you can generate this idea of two. Right. And over time, what you learn to do is chunk this idea of adding one to a number. So then I can give you three and you can add one to it and get four, right? And, and you sort of, you chunk these five or four separate ideas into one thing. And that thing gets stored in your brain at a very fast neural circuit that you can then access again later as one idea, right? So you can take five little ideas, chunk them into one and five little ideas and chunk them into one and then take five chunks and chunk them into another chunk and take five of those chunks and chunk them into another chunk. And that is how we're able to understand really high level concepts. It's by chunking low-level concepts together and sort of just working up in complexity because we can only operate on a handful of things at a time. And so those things just have to become much better summaries of lower-level concepts. So I think it's worth the time to go through those explanations because these ideas are focused in diffused mode thinking, this idea of chunking. These are crucial to understanding why we employ certain techniques to help us in our learning philosophies, right? Right. So... For instance, when you come to a technique like spaced repetition, which is quite a popular one, so like medical students will be familiar with tools like Anki, which 
allow you to do this. Um, many people are familiar with the use of flashcards. Um, spatial repetition is, is often used with flashcard systems to help you reinforce information that you're unsure about and to spend less time on information that you've already ingested well. Let's say. Yeah. So the idea being you, you have a whole bunch of flashcards. Well, what I was just going to say on Anki is I used it all the time in my second year of medicine and I still remember the things that I learned there. So what I actually will do is in the show notes, there's a publicly available Anki deck for medicine and it's it's real top notch so so like all your anatomy and all those kind of so, sort of what seems to just be like brute memorization and 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 medicine's an interesting one because unlike some other topics where say maybe some topics in history where you might study some period in time and you memorize a whole bunch of dates and names and quotes and people and then you study some other topic and you can sort of forget those details. With medicine, this could all be relevant at some point in the future. Right. Right. Your, your ability to understand how everything in the human body interacts is crucial. Mathematics is another example like this, where most, most of mathematics is interdependent and interrelated and, until you get to a very sort of advanced level. And so there are certain subjects in which your ability to recall things, not just in a week's time when the test or exam happens, but in 50 years time is crucial. And a lot of these systems work not just in allowing you to learn things quickly, but into learn them if so effectively that you remember them for much longer. So for people who aren't familiar, space repetition, the general concept is just you have something like a flashcard that you're trying to, to learn, which has got information on both sides. You pick up the flashcard and see if you can recall the other side. If you can, then you put it into like one box if you've struggled, you put it into another box. And if you just failed completely or guessed the wrong thing, then it goes into a third box. And then you review those boxes at different frequencies. So the things that you keep failing on, you review more frequently. The things that you mostly get right, you review less frequently. And the things that you get right every time, you hardly ever refer to. And there's systems of doing this in an analog way, but Anki is an electronic system that does this automatically with a much higher granularity. And Tiny Cards is like Duolingo's version of this right. that, that is also uh, quite effective, quite popular, has a really good mobile app that's freely available. So that's also quite a nice one. Right. Um, but that's just, that's the technique of spaced repetition, which helps master chunks more optimally and reinforce those chunks regularly. Right. So you can see here, there's a technique that is effective at addressing the underlying principles in service of the overarching philosophy. So you've got almost this like hierarchy of learning tiers that we that we've presented. Right. And I mean, I think the whole idea of flashcards of, of testing, right, is linked to this idea of deliberate practice. Right. And so the idea there is because we tend to towards comfort. Right. And it's always uncomfortable not to know something. When we test ourselves or when we study, we spend a disproportionate amount of time on things we already know. And the idea of de deliberate practice is to just find the area of most discomfort and spend more effort there, right? And flashcards have a Absolutely. great inbuilt mechanism of combining this deliberate practice with the testing effect. And then lastly, with this idea of spaced repetition, where you know, repeatedly showing yourself something over time uh, embeds it in your memory. And the other great thing about the flashcards is that they, if you think about it almost as with the metaphor of good experimental design, it pre it prevents ordering effects because you, you shuffle the cards randomly. Whereas when you're just looking and scanning through your textbook, 
the information that comes earlier might prime you to remember things that come later. Right. And so you fool yourself into thinking you know everything, but all you're doing is like priming yourself to recall it based on previous information. Mm. So knowing where it is on the page, knowing the section that it's in, all of these things. Whereas with uh, flashcards and space repetition, it's always out of order. So it's always just direct idea association, right? So anyone who's had that experience of they read through the book and they're like, oh, I know all of this, I've got it. And then they sit down in the test and they get a question that's from like the middle section and they just completely draw a blank. That's almost certainly because you've learned it in the context of recall in the order that it occurs in the textbook in context, whereas the flashcard learning system is, is entirely out of order and randomized and is therefore much harder. It takes much longer to master, but when you've mastered it, you really have mastered those concepts. Right. At least from a recall perspective. I think just one more piece of the puzzle to add here before I think we move to what I would say is our quasi-novel contribution is just maybe a quick discussion of the method of loci and maybe just why evolutionarily at least that works so well for humans. So I know that you have used uh, memory palaces before, so maybe you can just take us through uh, what they are, why they work, and a brief example maybe. Yes, yeah, so the method of loci or loci like the plural of the word locus, meaning position, is this idea that I think originated from, I think, Cicero in, in ancient Greece. But it's essentially the idea of using spatial memory or, or actual physical space as a way of encoding information. Right? What do I mean by this? Well, humans, if you think about how we evolved, one of the things we had to do was navigate really well in vast landscapes and know where things were, know where to find certain plants, certain foods, certain animals uh, or shelters, whatever. And so we we have brains that are very much optimized towards understanding spatial relationships and understanding distance and and things like that. So you might really struggle to remember a page of numbers, but you might find it really trivial to remember every sort of inch of the home you grew up in as a child and the method of loci is essentially just leveraging this bias in human memory of the physical by encoding ideas abstract ideas into physical space right and so the sort of probably apocryphal story behind this goes that i think it was cicero or one of these greek characters was at a uh, dinner party and the whole building collapsed and everyone died except him and he was able to recount who had been there and who had died because he could remember where each person was sitting around the table right and this is almost like doubly effective because humans are also very good at remembering faces and characters and so right. just leveraging two ways that album so without even deliberately trying he had managed to memorize everyone sitting at this massive table uh, or in this massive room without trying just because of the spatial relationships of those things right so so let's say you have this idea of okay you remember your whole uh, childhood home every inch of it every detail where every object was very well in very in very high resolution well now what you can do is start making associations between these things in space so maybe there was a cupboard or a or a dresser and on top of this stood a vase and now you can make a connection in your brain between the dresser and the number or, or the constant pi and the vase and raising that 
to the radius squared, let's say, like, right. because I don't know, that looks, the, the vase looks like an R to you, whatever. And now you've remembered pi R squared as a formula for finding uh, the area of the circle, that, that kind of thing, right? You've, you've now used spatial connections to be able to memorize things. So this is often used in a different form by the people who memorize things like decks of cards or just long lists of numbers or digits of pi. They will encode each letter or each number as a character and then make like a story out of it in a very spatial narrative, right? So if you think about like the number of the number two looking kind of like a swan, the number four looks kind of like a sailboat, the number seven looks kind of like a hook, right? So if you were trying to remember two seven four, you would remember the swan getting hooked on the sailboat. And the more ridiculous you make these things, the better and the more easy they are to to remember. And there's some like great uh, videos online of people who will like walk you through memorizing like 30 numbers and you just recite it once and you're able to tell yourself that story again and remember all 30 numbers perfectly and so the people who are memorizing decks of cards and these sort of things are just really good at that conversion and that technique and not confusing themselves right and so this is one of these tools you can use for just pure recall so i think that leads kind of naturally then into something that we stumbled upon just in conversation one day and I think both of us realized that it was at least one way of codifying the way we see our journey in learning, right? Mm. But to explain it, we have to first do a little tangent into this idea of inferential distances, and then mm. we can explain the full picture. So yep. this is something we have done before on this podcast, but that's not a tragedy. And I think let's just give it a bash. So uh, should we flip a coin here? Who wants to give a bash of explaining the bias of expecting short inferential distances? Uh, yeah, or we could just sort of throw in bits and pieces of it and, and fill out the story. So one thing that might help is actually the, there's a formal definition of inferential distance now on the less wrong wiki, which is probably quite helpful. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a concept that is notoriously difficult to explain because of itself in a very meta way. But... I think, I think this definition kind of helps and then we can fill in some details. So the definition of inf inferential distance is a gap between the background knowledge and epistemology of a person trying to explain an idea and the background knowledge and epistemology of the person trying to understand it. So in simple speak, that would be, it is the difference between what I know when I'm trying to explain something and what you know when you're trying to understand it. Right. And I'm explaining something to you, right, uh, in, in that example. And the example that's often used is explaining something like evolution through natural selection, right? If you know a physicist who's never been exposed somehow to the theory of evolution before, but they understand the laws of physics really well, they have that kind of critical thinking, they value evidence, they value arguments, they value causal and inferential logic then it's not too hard to explain to them the theory of evolution and they'll get it pretty quickly because you kind of just have to walk them through, okay, this is biology, these are what organisms are, and this is how they can change over time by selectively breeding and how things can affect that. Cool, and then they've got the concept. But if you have someone who doesn't understand the concepts of science or evidence or inference or causality in any way, well, you're going to have a lot more steps that you need to explain that you're going to have to walk them through one by one before you can explain to them the concept of evolution via natural selection. And if you skip steps, more than one even, they will 
just lose you completely and what you're saying is going to sound probably ridiculous to them and they're probably not going to believe you and right. the argument as to sort of how this arose is rooted in the fact that we were in hunter-gatherer tribes and it was almost impossible to have be more than one inferential step away from anyone else in your tribe right we we all had shared knowledge with everyone else in our tribe and if I w went out on my own one day and discovered some some oasis with water and fruit and something like that, I didn't have to go and explain motion and navigation and the concept of water and the concept of fruit. All right, I had to do right. was just be like, yo, dude, over there, some water, let's go drink. And the guy's like, oh, cool. So it was just one inferential step. Right. So you almost never had more than one. And so there's a bias against multiple steps of inference. Like we immediately sort of recoil from people trying to explain things by skipping inferential steps because we, we immediately doubt them and they seem like an outsider to the tribe because everyone inside our tribe was at the same inferential level as we were. Right. Which is, yeah. There's a very elegant essay on this by Edkowski and we'll link to it. It's definitely worth reading. Yeah, of course. But... That's the TLDR. I don't know if I'm missing anything there. Well, I just think that, so as you said, evolutionarily, our brains are expecting arguments that are open and shut in one step. Mm. But because of the advent of books and formal arguments, right, you can take a book and be led through a hundred or more little steps to reach the conclusions, right? And then we often are bewildered when you come and repeat the conclusion of, let's say, like a, a book with a fairly controversial or interesting conclusion like Sapiens by mm. Yuval Noah Harari, right? And you can go and repeat the tagline, the conclusion, oh, most of humanity is propped up by shared stories which take on an almost life of their own. Mm. And someone who disagrees with that might not be disagreeing because the conclusion is false, but because they haven't been walked through all of the argumentative steps yeah. before that that led to that conclusion, right? Mm. Except that our brains are these ancient hunter-gatherer brains that are expecting that you, there are no steps to walk through. Yeah. It's not just that they physically can't understand the steps that aren't there. It's also that as soon as they have that experience of there being multiple steps, they immediately feel like you're from outside the tribe and get defensive and don't want to believe you. Right, so if you've ever had this experience of trying to explain technology to someone who's like over the age of eighty, you'll you'll know you'll know what I mean. Where they just don't want to know because it's it just seems too foreign and too alien to them. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I think this concept in itself is uh, worth the price of admission, so to speak. Once you know about it, you start seeing it everywhere, and it does, I think, help absolutely. Just in terms of realizing when a disagreement is not so much because you actually have a fundamental difference, but you might just be missing some key inferential steps. So the reason we brought that up, right, is we were talking one day, if I remember, about how would you ever go about prioritizing one domain or one area over another, right? There are so many things to learn, and I mean, just all of them are interesting. And how would you put one thing in front of the other? How would you choose a priority? And one idea that we eventually settled on was you should learn in a way that seeks to minimize the average number of inferential steps between your current self and the you that understands some new topic of interest. So let me try and be a little bit mm -hmm. less wordy there. Essentially, what I'm saying is 
in a world where you have to update your knowledge regularly and in which you might have to rapidly acquire some new skills, some new understanding, right? What you should be doing is learn the set of things so that you have, if I were to borrow an idea from Matt here, almost like a minimum spanning set, right? The smallest number of building blocks with which you can reach any other position in that um, space. In other words, learn everything so that in some reasonable amount of time, you could cover the inferential distance to learn some new area. All right, so to, to make that concrete, that would be, okay, you could go and if let's say you've got 10 hours to learn stuff in, right? right? Uh, just, just to make this a sort of tangible problem. And you could go and spend the entire time learning about the horse that Napoleon rode into one particular battle during the Napoleonic Wars, whatever, right? And you can learn every detail about this horse. But then you might leave that 10-hour study session knowing everything about this horse and come across the idea of fusion of gases through some volume or some space and suddenly you've got no clue where to even start. This concept is totally foreign to you and it's hours before you can even understand the components of chemistry and physics and mathematics that would allow you to to do the calculations of diffusion of gases right whereas alternatively you might go okay cool i have these 10 hours and you would spend let's say five hours learning sort of the basics of arithmetic and algebra another hour or two learning the basics of subatomic physics uh, another few hours learning basic concepts about spaces and about chemistry and so when you then walk out that room and someone tries to explain diffusion of gases to you well, now you understand algebra, you understand the basics of what atoms are and how they interact, the different states of matter. And so it's not that hard to imagine these particles that you're already familiar with bouncing around and moving to each other. And you can model that with equations that you can manipulate because you understand algebra, right? So it's taken you only a few inferential steps to be able to master that topic and actually start making predictions from it. Like if I light this uh, incense, I will smell it on the other end of the room faster than if I light the incense in, in a larger room or something like that, right? You, you can start making predictions and, and being accurate about that. And so the idea being, you don't know what you're going to want to or need to learn when you leave the room in general. There's many things that you might want to or need to learn. So you've just got to do a sort of basic analysis of, of what you can see of the landscape out there and learn things that might help you. So in, in the way that we spoke about learning some maths and some physics and some chemistry, you would, you would try and learn those core ingredients that allow you to minimize how many extra inferential steps you must take to learn any other topic or to master any other topic, right? So knowing all about Napoleon's horse in one particular battle is not very useful for learning about almost anything else, right? right? And it's almost certain you're not going to need that. But if you know the basics of like biology and of some concepts of history and you know some things about the anatomy of different animals, well, then you can afterwards learn the details about Napoleon's specific horse in one specific battle quite quickly, almost faster than you would have learned it if you're just learning everything from scratch. And this idea is that it's a much more efficient way to learn things and it allows you to specialize as needed as opposed to trying to predict what you need to be a specialist in way before that time arises. Right. So I think that's just it, right? Is... I think we live in a world where 
what you'll need to know, you know, five years from now is fairly unpredictable, right? Even if you have a job or even if you have a degree already, right? Even if you're a professor. You don't necessarily know what skills you'll have. You don't know what things we'll invent as a society. And your role could change and you'll be required to update your knowledge. And so the argument that I'm really trying to make here is you should seek to have the kind of knowledge bank that makes it so that you are the kind of person who could sit down and take two, let's say five hours at most to get a grip on this new area rather than having to do mm. like a year's worth of study, right? So, I mean, let's say exactly. if you've never picked up or done any calculus, right? And tomorrow you want to go and do some reasonably difficult machine learning. Mm. The amount of hours it's going to take you to pick up the machine learning is going to be a lot more because you're lacking the ideas of, of calculus, let's say, right? Because mm. that is several inferential steps away, right? Whereas having that calculus means that whenever you see it, no matter where it comes up, you know, if we invent some new idea in machine learning tomorrow and you want to learn about it, well, if you've got your calculus there, you can just pick up that new paper and read it. Mm. So in, in another way to phrase this whole idea of, of, of making sure that the average inferential distance is minimized is you could just say, make sure that you are always better than the scariest part of the textbook or paper or whatever it is, right? Like if you know the scariest bit, you know, the most mm. awful looking equation and you're not phased by it, well then absorbing that knowledge is as simple as reading it, right? Absolutely. Whereas if absorbing that knowledge means spending months trying to understand the prerequisites to understand that, then suddenly the time it takes you to pivot into new domains is not feasible. Absolutely. So this is, I think, a pretty great concept. And this makes a lot of sense in the modern world. So the first thing I'd like to, to talk about is sort of why this makes sense in the modern world. The second thing I'd like to talk about is, okay, this is great, but what makes this challenging in terms of we don't know what we don't know and we don't know what we might need to or want to know or what we need to know to get there. And right. then a third thing I'd like to talk about is heuristics that we might use in everyday life to sort of simplify the process of deciding what we should learn next to keep us in this direction of minimizing our average inferential steps, right? So firstly, starting with why this is sort of relevant in the modern world. For almost any knowledge work that you might do today, it's now a hybrid human-machine intelligence already, right? We don't have to wait. This is not sci-fi stuff, right? The fact that we're sitting down at laptops to create this podcast, the fact that anyone who's going to be like studying or learning anything will have access to the internet and to Wikipedia and to all of these repositories of information, to the ability to crunch numbers arithmetically very quickly and efficiently and, and obtain answers to ridiculous precision. This means that we have to ask ourselves a different question. It's no longer the way it was in the ancestral landscape where facts were survival. It is now a case of, okay, we're a hybrid with the computers that we use. What are they good at? And what are they bad at? And what are we good at? And what are we bad at? And where can we find things where they are really good and we're really bad or where they're really bad and we're really good? And the cases where they're really good and we're terrible, they should do the work, 
and we should find ways to offload it to them efficiently and not spend any time on doing that ourselves. And in ways in which they're not so good and we're really good, well, those are the things we should learn to master really well, okay? So let's let's think of some examples of that. Well, okay, computers are way better than us at just brute arithmetic, right? Like they can add together 100-digit numbers instantaneously. It would take you mm. hours to do that in your head and you'd probably get it wrong. It would take you many, many minutes on paper and you might make errors with significant consequences quite frequently, right? Conversely, computers are not very good at like assimilating and synthesizing information. They're not very good at drawing together ideas and semantic meaning from different contexts, right? They're not very good at creating a metaphor between Gödel and Escher and Bach, like a human is, right? or at least one human was, <laughs> And so another thing is that they aren't like, they're not really good at that assimilating and synthesizing. They're not very good at interpreting things like humans are, right? We can tell a story about something. What does it mean? We can go to a high level knowledge, to a mental model quite quickly from just looking at the results of some raw data. Like we can look at a scatter plot and go, oh, I see. If we increase this one thing, the other thing increases. Like a computer can encode that, but they don't then create an abstract model of that. Like, oh, if I eat more healthily, my disease incidence decreases and that affects their like daily life. It doesn't become a mental model very easily, right? They just see the data. And another thing that they don't do very well is strategize, right? Like humans are still better than the most cutting edge artificial intelligences at strategy games. And, and, and this is just strategy games, right? Games are quite locked down contexts. If you now talk about like the kind of strategy involved in being a CEO or a battlefield general or something like that and especially the more social intelligence that you start involving well humans just absolutely dominate here like we don't understand all the mechanics of the game theory but we can strategize socially in ways that computers won't be able to at all if not for a very long time right so now we need to look at okay how can we leverage these things how can we do these things and offload the grunt work to computers and a lot of the world does that already but we now want to optimize that even further and design our philosophies and techniques of learning around that right right so so that's the context for it then things we want to look up is why is this hard in terms of asymmetric information or or, or sort of obscured information and b what heuristics might we use to actually give ourselves a guideline for which direction to move with this learning on a daily basis so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that in terms of rules of thumb i think asking yourself honestly just how fundamental something is and playing the game of first principles almost asking why in a very childlike way quite quickly leads you to using a more fundamental explanation than otherwise you would reach if you were stuck in your in your jargon right well it kind of ties back to that that idea of if you had to delete a whole bunch of this information could you rebuild it Right. It's, it's almost like asking, like, what is the sort of most the optimally efficient encoding of this information? Right. Like what compression can I apply to my knowledge such that I'm optimizing how much stuff I can recreate from scratch? Yeah. Another way to think of this might be, OK, what 20 equations from physics can I memorize that mean I can reconstruct any other equation in physics with minimal effort if I happen to not be able to look those up? or any other concept. And, and, and like physics is something that's 
particularly prone to those, whereas, you know, in mathematics, it's maybe a little bit trickier, but, you know, you've got sort of still core concepts, core understandings, things like Pythagoras' theorem, things like the basics of trigonometry, those kind of core, almost your axioms, right? If you can work up from the axioms, the first principles. No, it's a, this, is, this is a lot harder the further you go from a technical field. It becomes much more subjective and much more complex the further you move sort of from the land of equations and, and numerals. But, but that's a pretty good rule. One idea I had while we were having this conversation was, could you ask yourself, what things would I need to know such that I could jump into any second or third year course in any department at a university and actually be able to like pass the course or do reasonably well so you just get to start the course from the beginning of that particular course that class but you don't get all like the prior classes right so could you jump into second year mathematics could you jump into third year philosophy some specific like philosophy of the ancient greeks or something like that right, right. could you jump into a second or third year fine arts class could you jump into a second or third year economics class and and talk about the like do you have the fundamentals that the concepts being presented to you would not be so strange that you wouldn't be able to follow the class and understand things and actually learn that it would be worthwhile uh, that seems like a reasonable heuristic to me and it does occur to me that this is very asymmetric right things like mathematics and physics require way more background and understanding and detail whereas something like maybe history or let's say some aspects of philosophy might not require as much building up it's that that's more just a, a question of experience than it is about prior knowledge especially things where the context changes so if you look at like history as was that example i made earlier the context might change and so mm. as long as you have the ideas you can really study anything i think that is the message overall though right is given some a minimal amount of work, anyone really could get on very interesting and rewarding parts of study. So uh, with that, I want to take us to a new experimental section of the show. And we're taking a cue from Tyler Cowan's great podcast, Conversations with Tyler, where he has a section called Overrated versus Underrated. But yeah, we're not going to do that. We are going to do a version where you, it's your turn this week, are going to react to a bunch of quotes that I'm going to throw at you. Uh, you haven't had a chance to hear these before, although you might recognize some of them. And yeah, okay. first thing that comes to your mind, you are free to pass. You up for it? Yeah, I'm up for it. I mean, I'm slightly terrified, not because of the uh, quotes coming my way, but the knowledge that I'll be expected to go and find a whole bunch of interesting quotes for you for some future podcast. So <laughs> it's not a, not, a, not a trivial task, but yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this. It's, uh, it's not often I get to essentially be in a game show of uh, a rationalist and Bayesian musings. So I'm looking forward to it. All right. Uh, first quote, discipline equals freedom. Jocko Willink. A classic, a classic, definitely a familiar one. I would say this is this falls into the class of quotes or class of statements that is not actually true, but holds some kind of truth in it. And what I mean by that is discipline is not equal to freedom, right? Like that the equation is demonstrably false in the sense that well, it, it's, it, I won't, I won't, uh, I'll leave it as a, an exercise to the reader, but yeah, discipline obviously doesn't equal freedom, but what he, what he means within that is true in the sense that through discipline, you will be able to attain freedom, right? These, this idea of hedonic adaptation. And if you just give in to all your desires, 
you will never actually feel good. You'll never feel free. You will never feel in control. You will never feel like a free agent in your life. This idea then translates back to, okay, well, do the opposite. Be disciplined, control yourself, take command, and therefore you will become free. So it's definitely in that class of, of quotes and, and quite, a, quite an effective one. Yeah. All right. Shut up and do the impossible. Elias Yadkowski. Shut up and do the impossible is a great one. Uh, it definitely makes me think of particular sort of scenes from Yadkowski's fictional work, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, yours as well, I believe. And That's right. yeah, it, it very much harkens to this idea of stop saying why things are impossible. Stop looking for reasons why it can't be done and just do it. Right, this idea that we are imposing a lot of restrictions on ourselves, and and someone like Elon Musk almost typifies this in the modern world. Right, he's like, oh, I'm just going to start a rocket company, and starts a rocket company, and didn't stop to think, oh, okay, well, that's you know not possible. No one's ever done this before. It's super expensive. Like, oh, we're going to just build a rocket for a hundred times cheaper than NASA does, without thinking why that's impossible. And a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time. The limitations are psychological, they're societal, they are egotistical, and they're not actually physical limitations. Until the laws of physics are holding you back, it's always possible to do what seems impossible. It's just very hard. Great. If you wish to put off all worry, assume that what you fear may happen is certainly going to happen. Alain de Botton. I like this. It's a, almost a stoic approach to things where if you just sort of assume that all your loved ones are going to die and your house is going to burn down and everything that can go wrong will go wrong, so to speak. It liberates you to not live in fear and worry and to appreciate and enjoy things for what they are and to release your anxiety over things that are out of your control and instead take action upon the things that are in your control. There you go. I quite like that one. It's, it's, well, it's well put. No man is liberated from fear who dare not see his place in the world as it is. No man can achieve the greatness of which he is capable until he has allowed himself to see his own littleness. Bertrand Russell. My sort of gut response here is how small we are in the universe. Right There is that moment I think many people have in their lives where they first comprehend just how enormous the universe is, even just the world, but especially the universe and all the galaxies and billions and trillions of stars and galaxies that are out there and you just feel so small and meaningless. And just a step beyond that is a kind of liberation of realizing that a lot of things don't matter, but noticing what things still do. Right. Last quote. There is nothing else whatever. I am everyone and no one and alone. Douglas Harding. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that, that it, it may just be that it's, you know, later in the evening and I had some wine earlier, but I don't know. That, that, <laughs> my mind is just not able to follow what that was leading me to. I don't know. Maybe I have to be in a much more existential brooding mood to, to, to make sense of that. Where is that actually from? What, what's the source material there? I went to the kitchen quickly and pulled it off of our wall. And I believe I got it out of Harding's book on having no head. Ah, 
Okay, so, I mean, metaphorically, it might make sense in terms of the, the sense of self. Then, then that would make sense. Maybe. Right? <laughs> but not right now. <laughs> I'd probably have to read it and mull over it and meditate on it to some extent for it to make sense. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was cool. Thanks for preparing those. That was, that was good fun. All right. Well, I mean, if you're listening to this and you've made it this far and enjoyed that section or hated that section, write to us and let us know podtangent at gmail.com or get in touch with us on twitter at podtangent yeah let us let us know because feedback is is what guides us and allows us to know what's not just a bunch of fun for us but also interesting to listen to and and worthwhile for people to hear definitely i i I think that's one that might be might be a fun thing to revisit at the end of some episodes maybe another thing that could be fun would be to sort of like do recommendations as a as an alternative and maybe strut between the two of those periodically that could be quite fun some some ideas some ideas to play around with there definitely but yeah i think we've we've had a pretty good chat on the philosophies the techniques and the mechanisms of learning i've definitely come away from this with a much more concrete understanding or framework in my mind of how those different tiers relate and while i was familiar with a lot of these different things they were just sort of loosely flying around and i experimented with them and I had a sense of them, but but now it seems to be a much more coherent framework in my mind. I don't know how you feel, but it's definitely refreshed my approach to how I'm going to go about learning. And I think it'll help me reprioritize things. And I mean, first and foremost, just more maths and physics seems to be like a pretty good way to go. I don't think you'll go too wrong with more maths and physics. I don't think uh, so but, either. But yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts? Just that I'd add to your list some computer science because I think one of the most active ways to learn anything is to try and implement it in code. You know, you can yeah, play I around guess. with it like a sandbox and that makes sure. the world a difference. Anyway, so it was good chatting. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com. That's P-O-D tangent at gmail.com. Or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. The best ways to support us are to share one of our episodes with someone who might enjoy them, or give us a rating and review on iTunes. That way, Apple knows that we're actually worth listening to, and all the platforms that pull content from them will know this as well. Jean-Luc and I both love having these discussions, and we relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. Your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.